And now I will introduce today's special guest. As 2008 was drawing to a close, Canadians witnessed an unusually exciting and just plain unusual bit of political theater, certainly by Canadian standards. A just-elected Conservative government suddenly poised on the brink of defeat. The overnight formation of an un unlikely multi-party coalition. The proroguing of a parliament that had barely begun to sit. And then the appointment of a new Liberal leader in record time. When the federal government brings down its much-anticipated budget next Tuesday, who knows how this uniquely Canadian political drama will continue to unfold. But we do know that Canada will be watching. In preparing for the resumption of Parliament, Michael Ignatieff has been crisscrossing the country with a town hall-style tour to hear Canadians' views. At the same time, Canadians are getting a chance to become better acquainted with the newest leader of the country's oldest political party. <coughs> Michael Ignatieff has a resume of epic proportions and a list of, achievement that goes on, of achievements that goes on for pages. Last month, the Globe and Mail's Michael Volpe offered this description of him. His curriculum vitae is dazzling. A thinker on global affairs, lionized throughout the Western world. A Canadian who has garnered truckloads of awards, honorary degrees, and distinguished lectureships. The eminent director of Harvard's Carr Center for Human Rights. An author of celebrated books published in 19 languages and articles that have appeared in leading periodicals in Britain, the United States, and Europe. A novelist, a journalist, a screenwriter, documentary maker, and television personality who has parsed the central moral and political issues of the times as well as the Freudian recesses of the human soul. Impressive. <laughs> Today, we get to learn more about Michael Ignatieff, the political leader, as he offers his policy prescriptions for an ailing economy and his aspirations for his party and the nation. His talk is entitled, Moving Forward from Hardship to Hope. Please join me in extending a warm welcome to Michael Ignatieff. Well, after that uh, fulsome introduction, it's all downhill from here. Um, but I, I thank you, Helen, for your kindness. If you'd allow me to begin on a just a momentarily uh, somber note, last time I spoke in a ballroom of the Royal York, there was a young man at the back of the hall, and uh, I, I'm thinking of him today. Uh, he was watching at the back. He was my chief policy guy, one of the best guys I ever had, and I wouldn't be here had he not done what he did for me. He died a year ago, pretty well today, of cancer at the age of 34. His name was Brad Davis, and I dedicate this speech to his memory. <laughs> I also want to thank all my colleagues and friends, uh, John McCallum and Bob and Scott and uh, Mario Silva I see out there and Bonnie Crombie and Rob Oliphant and Gerard Kennedy, uh, Martha Hall Finley, Kirsty Duncan. I, I'm just about, I'm sure I've just made one of those fatal mistakes. I forgot something. Please forgive me if I've missed anybody out. I want to, I want to celebrate my team. I believe that we make a pretty strong contrast 
between the one-man band on the other side. I'm proud of my team. We want to lead as a team. I want to also thank my, my good friend, Yuko Powell and Tony Anuzzi and the Carpenters for sponsoring the event. And I think it's worth recalling that the Carpenters were instrumental in proposing the country's first national infrastructure program 15 years ago. It's a great thing to have done. Of course, in those days, it was during a liberal government uh, where the funds weren't just announced, they were actually uh, spent and, uh, and uh, employed uh, some of the great Carpenters in, in, in this uh, hall. I appreciate the time to, to uh, be uh, at the Canadian Club and the Empire Club. And it's great to, uh, to have my colleague and friend of 40 years, Bob Ray, on the, on the platform. And your, the warmth of your welcome to him shows the respect in which you hold him. I'm uh, also, I think that, is John Capobianco in the hall? He's the president-elect of this club. And I ran against him and beat him in the Etobicoke Lakeshore. <laughs> and um, in, a, in an ecumenical uh, impulse of mine, I wanted to uh, I wanted to say hi to John, and he was a worthy opponent, and I salute him. Um, <laughs> I look around the, the room today. I'm not, uh, I'm not deluded. Uh, some of you actually do support uh, the Prime Minister, and maybe 50-50 uh, in this hall uh, are big fans of the Prime Minister. And the other half, of course, are huge supporters of Barack Obama. Uh, the, um, this club, the two clubs, the Empire Club and the Canadian Club, have always been very important to my family. <clears throat> when I was preparing this talk, uh, my people discovered that three generations of my family have spoken to this club. My great-grandfather, a New Brunswicker called George Parkins, spoke to the Empire Club. My grandfather, a dispossessed Russian emigre, spoke to this club. <clears throat> And my dad spoke to this club in 1969, so I'm the fourth generation. And I looked up my father's speech, and he said then in 1967, those to whom this opportunity is offered, I realize, have to be brilliant or original or both. Since there is difficulty in being brilliant when you're trying to be original and being original when you're trying to be brilliant, I'll just try to be informative. And uh, so, uh, Dad, wherever you are, I'll take your advice. Um, I've been traveling uh, coast to coast with the leaders of my economic team, Scott Bryson and John McCallum, holding town halls with business and union leaders, students, legislators, seniors, Canadians from every walk of life. Uh, you can't lead, ladies and gentlemen, unless you listen. And we have really listened. We've listened to heartfelt stories about lost jobs, small businesses on the edge, fears about paying for drugs for your sick children, worries about having to go to the local food bank. And I've heard troubling questions that go to the heart of our dilemma as a people. How will I ever get my first job? Have I seen my last job? How do I tell loyal employees that we're closing down? How will I help get my kids the funds for college. And a large number of Canadians come up to me and they say, you know, I'm going to get by, but I'm worried about my neighbor. I'm worried about my co-worker. And it's a good thing to hear that. We're a people who look out for each other. And we must not lose that.
because recessions can divide a country. They can make us mean. They can turn us selfish. And we must not let that happen. We need to take... We need to draw strength from each other. We need to take inspiration from each other. And I certainly got inspiration the other day. I was standing on the platform at Union Station uh, waiting for a subway when a woman came up to me and she wished me good luck. And I asked her where she was from and she said she was from Oshawa. And she said she was on her way to the YMCA for job counseling. And I asked why and she said she was a tool and die maker at GM and they let her go. And I said, you must be worried. And she said, you bet, I'm a single mom. I've got one boy in university and I've got another boy finishing high school and it all comes down to me. And then she added something I'll never forget. She said, but we'll get there. We will get there. With that kind of spirit, we'll get there all together. I'm in politics to help that woman get the training she needs, get the next job, get her kids through university and make sure she has a secure and happy retirement with her grandchildren. And she needs a government as strong and resourceful and courageous as she is. And those of us in elected office must not fail her. Nous devons serrer les coudes en tant que pays. Nous avons commencé cette période de difficultés ensemble et nous arriverons en sortir ensemble plus unis, plus compétitifs, plus confiant que jamais. Je sais que nous pourrions y arriver. Nous autres libéraux, nous comprenons ce que signifie diriger en période de difficulté. Les Canadiens tournent vers nous lorsque les temps sont durs. Les Canadiens ont une mémoire. Ils se souviennent de notre bonne gestion budgétaire, des excédents budgétaires répétés, de la réduction de la dette, des allègements fiscaux sur les profits, les recettes et les revenus de notre excellent bilan financier et de, nos, et de nos politiques sociales prévoyantes. Les Canadiens se rappellent aussi que nous avons comblé le déficit de 42 milliards de dollars laissé par les années Mulroney. Nous avons épongé ce déficit et bon Dieu que c'était difficile. Aujourd'hui, M. Harper nous a amenés à cette époque conservatrice difficile. We need to stand together as a country. We went into this turmoil together and we'll come out of it together more united, more competitive, more confident than ever. I know we can. We liberals understand something about leadership in tough times. We've been here before and Canadians turn to us when times are tough because Canadians remember. They remember sound fiscal management, repeated surpluses, debt reduction, tax cuts on profits, revenue and income, strong financial performance and forward-looking social policy. Canadians remember that it was we who cleaned up the $42 billion deficit left behind by Brian Moore. We slayed that deficit, but we know, and we got the scars to prove it, how tough it was. When you start a deficit, it's difficult to get it out of your system. Today, Mr. Harper is taking us back to those tough Tory times. Just yesterday, he signaled that we should be prepared for a $64 billion deficit in the next two years. And he wants to get the bad news out of the way before the budget. 
I asked Mr. Harper not to play games like that. I told him, put the facts and figures on the table. Don't let them slip out at his convenience. But the guy just can't help himself. He thinks it's all some kind of political game. But the release of this budget information was irresponsible and costly to our economy. And who knows how many years Mr. Harper is planning to be in deficit. He hasn't shared that information with us. What we do know is it was a long, hard road to dig us out of the deficit during the last Mulroney government. As we face the budget choices this week, I have been clear. Targeted assistance to those Canadians who need help most is essential. But broad-based tax cuts that dig us deeper into deficit are not. This is not about political positioning, my friends. This is a basic issue in political morality. My generation should pay its freight. I am not going to burden the next generation with debts that we didn't pay off. If the government proposes a deficit, and we accept the necessity of a temporary deficit, but if they propose a deficit, I want to see the plan that digs us out. And I don't want the plan based on some numbers made up in the PMO's office. Trust Canadians with the truth. Then show them you're competent. When a Liberal government returned the country to surplus, we set aside a contingency reserve, savings for a rainy day, a $3 billion cushion. But this government scrapped that reserve. They spent rashly. They cut taxes rashly. They brought Canada to the red line when times were good, and now the cupboard is bare. We face hard times headed towards a deficit that may top a hundred billion dollars before we get to the other side of this thing. And barely eight weeks ago, the government claimed there would only be a short recession and certainly no need to run a deficit. And the question Canadians are asking is, how did this guy get it so wrong? How did Stephen Harper completely misjudge the crisis we're facing? In September, on the campaign trail, you'll remember, Mr. Harper said if we were going to have a recession, he probably would have had it by now. Remember that? In October, he told us there was still no recession, but this is great. There was sure to be a lot of great buying opportunities emergence as a consequence of all that panic, I quote. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, that was Mr. Harper's strategy. Let the chips fall where they may, and if you can make a few bucks on the misfortune of others, good luck to you. I don't like that kind of politics, and I'm in politics to stop that kind of politics. On November 27th, in front of Parliament and all Canadians, the Conservative government put forward its economic update, the famous autumn economic statement. And he said that the right way to address Canada's difficulties <clears throat> was to take away civil servants' right to strike, attack pay equity for women, and stop public funding for political parties. That was not a program. That was a provocation. And we said, no, you don't. Back down. Think again. This isn't a game. This is a recession with painful human consequence, so let's get serious. On Tuesday, we'll see whether Mr. Harper has started to listen. We'll see whether he's finally got serious. And if he hasn't learned to listen, 
he is not going to lead for long. The real test of leadership is listening when it counts. <clears throat> it also means getting your story straight and telling Canadians the truth. Mr. Harper has failed to tell Canadians the truth. The truth is we lost more than 100,000 jobs in the last 60 days. The unemployment rate for young Canadians is pushing 13%. And I don't want to live and you don't want to live in a country where young people begin their working lives on the unemployment line. And it's not just those who can't find work or those who lose their jobs altogether. It's all the people now going on short time. The Canada's largest steel company, DeFasco, thousands of employees were put on a two-week layoff over Christmas. And as of January 1st, salaried employees are now working four days a week. You know what that means? That means you start the new year with a 20% pay cut. You like that? I don't. It's not just workers in the blast furnaces and the coke ovens. The recession is scything through every family in Hamilton. It's hurting Sudbury, the Sioux, Windsor, Thunder Bay. And the Canadians who work in the big banks downtown, maybe some of you aren't feeling too happy at the moment, aren't feeling too sure that they'll have a job at the end of the year. That's the truth. That's where we are. And this isn't just a central Canada recession. As Scott and, Scott and John and I discovered, it's a pan-Canada recession. The city in Canada that lost the most jobs last month Guess where that was? Calgary. Calgary. When Alberta is hurting, the whole of Canada is hurting. And the whole country suffers. In the forestry towns of the BC interior, depending on the youth, dependent on uh, demand for their lumber, they're facing the collapse of the U.S. housing market. In Saguenay-Lac-Saint-Jean, Alcan is cutting jobs. In Esterhazy, Saskatchewan, a town that Suzanne and I have a particular affection for, the potash mines are cutting back. Dans tout le pays, des millions de Canadiens sentent que leur avenir est précaire. Ils savent que le taux de chômage n'est pas une statistique. Ils savent que le chômage, c'est une peur au ventre, peur de ne pas voir nourrir sa famille, peur que ce qui était arrivé à votre voisin va arriver chez vous. Voilà la vérité. En période difficile, les Canadiens veulent un gouvernement capable de mettre de côté les calculs politiques et qu'ils agissent. Voilà la vérité. Right across the country, millions of Canadians feel their futures hanging by a thread. They know that unemployment is not just a statistic. It's that fear in your guts, that worry that you're not going to be able to feed your family. Fear that what's happened to your neighbor across the street is about to happen to you. And that's the truth. And we need to look at that fear and name it and stare it down and do something about it. In hard times, Canadians expect compassion, understanding and competence from their government. The Canadians expect their leaders to have a plan, a plan to manage the problem, a plan to lead the country. And this government has failed. The federal government has been weakened in its capacity to deal with the problems we face in a time of turbulence and uncertainty. Reckless spending and irresponsible tax policies have left Canadian jobs, savings and pensions hanging in the balance. Canadians deserve better. We deserve better than a government that turned an economic crisis into a political crisis 
and from there into a national unity crisis. We deserve better than a government that is the last country in the G8 to come up with a plan for dealing with a crisis that the whole world saw coming in 2007. And this is where the, the failure of leadership is so flagrant. Leadership is about anticipating the future. When I was a kid, there was a train that used to run down the center of the small town in Quebec where I spent my summers. And my dad took me down to the train track and he said that if you put your ear to the rails, you can hear a train before you see it. And we did. And you could. And Mr. Harper didn't. He didn't have his ear to the rail. And he did not act. Rather than get infrastructure money out the door and get Canadians working, he let $2 billion of allocated infrastructure funding go to waste, unspent. We don't need funds that are never invested. We need the money flowing now. We need to put people to work now. Everyone has been primed for action. The municipal leaders, the construction unions, everywhere you look, they're ready to go. And the person who's not acting is Stephen Harper. Instead, 44,000 construction jobs were lost in the month of December alone. And the members of the Carpenters Union know what that means. On Tuesday, Mr. Harper and his ministers are going to promise the same infrastructure they failed to deliver for the past three years. But the time for this kind of shell game, this hokey-cokey stuff, is over. The crisis demands that we use the full power of our government, because it's not just about infrastructure. It's about infrastructure that builds the country, so that when we're through this recession, we'll be prouder, more united, and more competitive than ever. I don't think the Conservatives understand that, but we do. Conservative governments didn't build national institutions like Medicare, a constitution, a flag, childcare, Kelowna. Liberal governments did and will, and that's what we need to do now. We need a budget that looks forward, that binds our country together and makes us stronger today and stronger tomorrow. We need affordable housing. We need public transit. We need energy grids. We need high-speed rail. We need programs that lift Canadian families out of poverty. We need to protect the pensions and savings of senior citizens so that we deliver on a fundamental promise of Canadian life, that retirement is a time of accomplishment and not a time of fear and anxiety. Mr. Harper, this is the key thing for me. Mr. Harper has allowed this country to slip, to become less than the sum of its parts. And now is the time to invest wisely so that this country once again becomes more than the sum of its parts. This crisis is testing our political system. And it's testing all of those in public life, good friends in the provincial government of Ontario. It's testing all of us. And Canadians everywhere are asking politicians, raise your game. Raise your game. Be equal to the hour. And the inauguration of President Obama this week shows how one man, one man putting himself at the head of millions can restore trust and faith in the political process. And we in Canada must do the same. We do not need to drift with the tide. We can act. We can choose. 
We can avoid the worst and we can create the best together. We can rebuild the trust that has been broken and restore faith in our own country. Canadians want a government that puts their country first. Enough with the games. Enough with the attack ads. Enough with the divide and rule. Let's try and do what's right. I swear to you, I will try to do what's right for my country next week. But I will ask some tough questions, because that's my job. Some tough questions of Mr. Harper and his budget. Will it help the needy? Will it save jobs? Will it create the jobs of tomorrow? Will it be fair to all of Canada's regions? And will it burden our children with debt? Those are the questions a responsible opposition has to ask. And if the government fails, the answers don't cut it. I am ready to lead. But I do not seek office at any price. And I'm look looking for shortcuts here. But I am ready. And my team is ready. And my deepest instincts, the instincts of this Liberal team, is that this country is strong, not weak. It is united, not divided. We are a determined, courageous, uncomplaining, and resolute people, just like that woman on the subway station at Union. Nous avons été, nous sommes, et nous serons un exemple pour le reste du monde. Nous avons été, nous sommes, et nous serons un phare parmi les nations. À présent, période de crise, ce phare doit briller. Les Canadiens doivent saisir cette chance comme ils ont déjà fait par le passé. We have been, we are, and we will be an example to the world. We have been, we are, and we will be a light among the nations. And in crisis, our light must shine. We must seize the moment, as Canadians have done before. Just take this hotel, little example. The Royal York opened its doors in 1929. Hell of a year to open a hotel. It was the tallest building in the Commonwealth, and it was the only one in Canada with elevators. When the stock market crashed a few months later, many thought the Royal York would close its doors. Many thought we'd never see tall buildings in Toronto again. Look at the city now. Look at what we have become now. Look at what we built in the darkest times in the 30s, in our parents' and grandparents' generation. Let's keep faith with the faith that they had. Look at the country now. Imagine what we can be. We can jumpstart job creation. We can spur innovation. We can lay the foundations for an economy of the future. We can protect the vulnerable, protect the jobs of today, create the jobs for tomorrow. This is the test this budget must meet. And my job is not to let Mr. Harper skate by with a passing grade. That's not good enough. It's not acceptable for Canadians. Not in these times, not ever. Now's the time to do better. My party and I want to bring people together with common purpose and common enterprise to show courage and boldness and revive the faith that people have in themselves and in their country, to draw upon the resourcefulness of Canadians and ask them to be equal to the greatness of this wonderful country, to forge long-term prosperity, strengthen our citizenship, strengthen our unity, rediscover our place in the world. Canadians understand the future poses challenge. The days ahead will be difficult. But together, together, tous ensemble, we can fill them with optimism and hope. And then, mes chers amis, my fellow citizens, my friends in this room, our light will truly shine. Thank you so much.
I will now call on Joanne MacArthur, President of the Empire Club, to thank Mr. Ignatieff officially. Madam President, distinguished guests, fellow members and guests of the Empire Club and the Canadian Club, I have the honor to express your formal thanks to the Honorable Michael Ignatieff. We are certainly living in difficult times and need a leader who can inspire people and regain trust. You have said, sir, that the only antidote to fear is hope. I'm sure that I echo most people's hopes as we enter this new session of Parliament that we are treated to a new transparency and to constructive debate, which hopefully leads to a new level of citizen engagement. Thank you for offering some hope today by sharing your ideas on how we should all move forward together. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Thank you again, Mr. Ignatieff, and thank you to all of you for joining us today. This concludes our television programming, which has been broadcast live on Rogers TV and CPAC. This meeting is now adjourned.